Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. The more you write, the more you improve. So if this book right now is not ready yet, it doesn't mean it's because it's bad. It just means it's because your, your next one is going to be even better. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to Geetha Lodge, a playwright, novelist and writer. Hi, this is Steve Wiley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the Comedy Crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Geetha is a multi-award winning playwright, novelist and writer for video games and screen. She also blogs about her experiences of being a single parent and has developed a large online following for her young adult and children's writing with close to 2 million views on Wattpad. Her first novel, She Lies in Wait, was a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller and a Richard and Judy book club pick. She signed with Penguin Random House Worldwide for her first three books in a crime series featuring DCI Jonah Sheens. Geetha has also recently launched a new podcast entitled Why Aren't You Writing? This was such a good conversation geetha's the first guest on the podcast who is primarily an author so it was great to dive in deep find out her whole creative journey we talk about loads of things from the impact of what you wear when you're working from home and and how that affects your productivity and focus she describes what it's like balancing single parenting while writing during lockdown and the importance of having routine and a space dedicated to your writing geetha advises to let yourself love the process of writing she breaks down her experience of studying english at cambridge university and how she set up a theatre company which went on to win an Edinburgh Fringe Award. Geetha emphasises the importance of knowing how to pitch and she explains how she juggled doing an MA in creative writing whilst being a single parent and running a business at the same time. We talk about how she built an online following for her writing on the platform Wattpad which gained over 1.8 million reads and she did that whilst she was waiting to hear back from publishers for her first novel. Geetha talks about her love for gaming, rock climbing and rowing and how all of them are 
ways for her to completely switch off and give her mind a rest from writing. She talks about what she finds useful about being on social media and we chart her 22 year journey from deciding to become an author to writing seven novels and then the seventh novel being the one that got her the three book publishing deal with Penguin, which enabled her to quit her job and write full time. We also talk about the importance of empathy and, and not basing your self-esteem on your career. Geetha breaks down her approach to how she comes up with ideas for future books and gives her one tip to aspiring authors and writers. So there is loads here. And remember, if you like this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, and if you, if you haven't done already, please do subscribe and rate and review the podcast on Apple. It really does help. That would be much as appreciated. And now over to Geetha. We're in the flow of the conversation. We're talking about whether what you wear has an impact on on your sort of your approach or psychology towards your work mindset when you're working from home. What, what's your thoughts on on that? Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. Um, not just because of the fact that you are sitting looking at yourself sometimes on a zoom or just mm. feeling that you're wearing work clothes but i think it's the act of getting dressed i think it's the ritual of actually doing the whole preparing yourself for work mm. it puts you in a completely different headspace and in fact the thing that i think i missed the most when lockdown happened as someone who doesn't actually go to work but works normally in coffee shops uh, because mm. obviously self-employed uh, life is a little bit a uh, little bit slack mm. i really missed getting up and dressing properly and then leaving the house and that was the hardest thing for me because right. I just wasn't feeling like I'd started my day and I don't know if you're the same but I just I just felt like such a slob 100% I think for me it was a combination of that and then also the environment of being in the coffee shop there's a certain energy there you know even just overhearing conversations that might inspire you but it's it's the hub of activity that I really missed Absolutely. I could not agree more with you on this. And it's really interesting how some people find that buzz kind of distracting. And I find it absolutely the opposite. I think it's really inspirational. Mm. I absolutely need it. And I even got to the stage when I got to the stage where there was one coffee shop that I went to where this guy would just was in there every day as well working. He would Mm. come and try and talk to me whilst I was trying to write like every single time it was still better to be there and have that distraction than it was (laughs) you know to have to be sitting at home what would he be talking to you about oh just anything I mean he told we we established fairly early on that we both wrote um in slightly slightly different ways so he was writing fantasy um and obviously I write crime so we, we we sort of had that chat fairly early on and then he just wanted to tell me because I think he hadn't really hung out with many other writers before everything that was going on with him and his book and ideas he'd had for marketing it and all sorts of things and it was sort of lovely um but it was also it was just very difficult because it would always be he always arrived a chunk later than I did because I'd do the school run quite early then I'd get there I'd be set up and I'd be going he'd yeah. arrive like maybe 45 minutes later when I was fully in flow and then want to chat and I just was not in the headspace so I have to say what I eventually did was I just chose a different coffee shop <laughs> so <laughs> if you're that if you're that guy and you're listening I'm really sorry it wasn't that it wasn't interesting it wasn't that I didn't want to know and uh, I loved the chats but it was just it was all a timing crisis uh, who, uh, who's so, he got now who's he got now to talk to because I, mean, I know maybe, there was a period of time where you would have gone back to the coffee shops. Did you did you go back in the in between bit between lockdowns, or did you go to you did you go to a different coffee shop? <laughs> I actually went to outside. Um, I basically I started going to an outside yes yeah, an outside sort of slot 
there okay. is a, a very nice spot out near the, the bridge down at the far end of Cambridge, which is a really good run or cycle to get there, which I always like as well. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, okay, so pretty much every time I, I'd end up after about two hours absolutely freezing because from this is from sort of September onwards. Right. It was it was genuinely a bit too cold to sit outside but with all of my layers i was just okay for a couple of hours and it made me feel so much better and, nice. and the interesting yeah. thing is even then you know you get the distractions you get the you get even at, when you're sitting outside and you think outside i won't be able to hear anyone else's conversation you still get that but it's it's kind of nice it's it's yeah. a sort of uh, yeah and as you say you listen in don't you you listen in I, and i guess also that you got the two hour limit means you've just got enough battery life on your laptop to, to get through it Absolutely. Although, actually, no, I have a I have a MacBook Pro, and I have to say, it is you know, it's a good four hour four hour machine. So yeah, um, I'm just showing off. I'm just showing off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've just um, swapped from the, the the MacBook Pro to the Air. I was just it was too oh, heavy, too heavy to lug around in 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 the bag. It, it is it is a heavy thing i had an air for a long time um and i just really wanted because the, the screen is better on the pro uh, i have a i have recently just over the last year and a half started getting real problems with migraines and ah. it is noticeably better with the macbook pro it's the full retina screen and it it, is, it does help yeah. uh, so it gives you a few more hours before you have to go and lie in a dark room which is very useful that is useful yeah that that alone is worth the the tag price isn't it um, it is it is so you, you briefly mentioned about um, being on school run. So you are, maybe we'll start off with that. H- how has it been, um, at first as a single parent, you know, as, as a writer and, and a single parent during this time in lockdown, um, how, how old is your, is your child? So my son's just recently turned 10. So he was right. nine for the original lockdown. And okay. I think I was very fortunate not to have a younger child who i mean not, not the younger children are terrible but just that oh, no, there's an awful lot more <laughs> yeah there's a lot more requirement for you to yeah. um you know give them attention and sure. really help them with schoolwork so i was very lucky not to have to yeah not to have to worry about that hmm. i um it's not that i didn't give him any attention with his schoolwork but i really did I have to say leave him to do the vast majority of it on his own hmm. and uh, the downside to that was after a six week sort of period I got a little bit of feedback from his school saying yeah he hasn't really handed in much work <laughs> that he should have been and so even when he was doing it he was then forgetting to do the bit where he actually uploaded it or handed it or shared it right so he they just thought he was doing nothing and uh, yeah wasn't wasn't a million miles from the truth so there was there was a lot of him not really doing quite as much as he should have done and then I, I felt like this time around if schools are out again I need to be better because he he's happier when he's doing something that's mm. a bit intellectually stimulating and not secretly just playing Minecraft for like five hours so that was that was that was an interesting challenge I found the fact that he gets lonely quite quickly quite tough because mm-hmm. he would yeah and he's, he's a single single child he's uh, I think they're normally called only children, aren't they? Not single children. <laughs> oh, there is the a single children. Oh, the single children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so he is a single child. Um, he does sometimes just need a little bit of company and a bit of comfort. And he mm. found Zoom sessions with his friends fabulous, mm-hmm. but they were only occasional. And the rest of the time, he just wanted someone to talk to. And at one point, again, I felt terrible because I was busy writing and you know trying to make my deadline, meet my deadlines. And he said to me, um, when I asked why he was watching a video and playing a game at the same time, he said, mm. because the video felt like company. And I oh. felt really 
bad <laughs> because I had sort of said to him, you know, you've got to stop saying mummy every five minutes. It's I'm not getting anything done. You, know, you need to be more independent. But actually, he kind of needed a bit more socialising. So again, that's another thing that I've um, been very conscious of. So if, this, if, we, if we have a full no school lockdown again, I've just got to find the time to hang out with him a bit more and you know, do things. Yeah, I, I know you blog about your experiences of um, you know uh, being a, a single parent and bringing up a boy. How how was it in the early days when you were juggling your your career as a as an author and, and writer and, and and bring up a child? Was it was it a real challenge at the beginning? And how did have you got any tips for for single parents who might be starting out on their their creative journey now on on how you went about setting up a, a structure of being sure. productive? So it was it was very interesting at first because when I started out, I actually had an agent for quite a while before I had a book contract and a, okay. an absolutely brilliant agent, but largely because the first book, having not quite sold to publishers, I took a long time writing the second book, which I'd always, ha- always had this plan for because exactly as you say, I was trying to juggle work. So I had a full-time mm. job that had become, in fact, far more than full-time. Then I had a child. Um, at the time, I had a very difficult relationship with someone who had a lot of problems. And writing just for about a year went entirely out of the window. And I was miserable because I had always written. I was a playwright before coming back to novels. I wrote novels the whole way through my teenage years. It's always been a fantastic outlet for me as well mm. as everything else. And I really struggled to do it. Fortunately, my fabulous agent essentially stalked me <laughs> until I'd finished this draft. And when she got to this point of sort of saying, uh, hello, I need it, I just thought, gosh, I've just got to prioritize this. This is what I want to do with my life, not the other job, not, you know, not the, the difficult relationship, but writing. Yeah. And I took some leave and I basically went to, went to see my parents who live over in Wales. And I said, please just take, take him for just a week. And I'm just going to sit in coffee shops and I'm going to write just solidly for a week and that was actually enough because I was so determined to do it and I'd got sundown to finish the whole thing off get it done and then get it sent in and I it's it's a really hard one I mean my advice I think would be to accept that it's okay to prioritize writing is one thing even if it's not yet your career if it really is what you want to do and it's your dream it is going to make you a better parent if you're doing it and I think this is the thing I realized that once I was writing again my feeling of not being able to cope my kind of bad temperedness went right down back to where it was before and I was back to being this laid-back patient person who I'd been rather than this you know frantic person I mean also I dumped the guy who was <laughs> causing me a lot of stress so that helped too that helped yeah sure but it really was a lot about the writing and when it I think also when it comes to when it comes to schedule the only real advice I'd have on sort of trying to keep momentum going is to have that routine those places that you go which are writing places and spaces so for me that's the coffee shop now I've had to make it part of my house but have a space which is something you associate with those ideas and I think it then just becomes a huge amount easier and then do you give yourself an allotted period of time so from from nine till 12 whatever it is this is my uninterrupted time to write yeah, I think well, the thing about now is, so it's all, it's all completely changed with being now a full-time writer. So once my contract came in from Penguin, I was in the mm. very fortunate position of being able to leave my job. In fact, what I first did was go, go down to two days a week because I liked the, the security, the comfort blanket of having that little bit of income. Sure. But given I was contracted for three books, I actually didn't need to. And eventually I just decided that 
it was really just making me write more slowly because inevitably two days a week spills into the other days. You answer emails, you know, you, you, it's difficult. So, so I went for full time. So now I get to do what I used to do when I was a playwright and structure my own day completely the way that I want. And I basically just break it, break it up into morning and afternoon sessions. That's all I really do. So I say to myself, right, here's, here's, here's me going in the morning and my most productive days are when I do the school run and then immediately start to write mm-hmm. and write, write, just write, write, write through. Lunchtime, I like to change scene and move. So even if I've gone to a coffee shop, I'll move to a different one at that point. Okay. I've discovered that now is a good, it's a good thing to do. Right. Or sometimes I might go home and then go back out. Um, and then I do an afternoon session. And I think the real advantage to having struggled so much of my life to try and fit writing in on the side and having loved to do it, having done it in the back of classrooms, having done it around a job, is that it feels like a treat still now i mean it, even now you know, i'm this is the fourth book i'm just finishing off at no point has it felt a slog it still feels really it, like i like i'm on a holiday or something mm-hmm. and i think if you can somehow make that association that's the other thing that will really help just just let yourself love it that's um that's a refreshing take because so often you hear about it being an agonizing um process you know and, and pursuit so it's really nice for uh, to hear it being <laughs> portrayed in that way um i wanted to wanted to ask you about uh you know earlier days how you first got into it i know you studied english at cambridge how was that experience and how do you think that set you up uh, in your latter years as, as an author in terms of mindset did it give you a certain level of confidence having having studied there and being around um those type of people it's interesting i i think a lot of people do study english in, and go on to write mm. and i think that being at cambridge inevitably i mean in this it's a sort of sad thing isn't it but it does give you this huge sort of rush of confidence because you are somewhere where you feel like you are smart you're surrounded by smart people there's lots of stuff going on there's a lot of kind of culture and creativity that goes on but the interesting thing for me was i actually wrote less when I was at Cambridge and I had ever written before and that I've mm. written since. I mean, except for that one year where I just couldn't write, I, I basically only wrote one play whilst I was there because I think it really does stretch a very different part of your brain. I think the, the analytical look at how people write, it can be a little bit of a creativity killer. Mm. You're, you're being encouraged to look at something as if someone had all these complex, um, very thematic or sometimes very very straightforward and structural concepts behind it whereas of course what you're never looking at is story you're never looking at what makes something really engaging and that that's sort of the real missing part of course because that's not what the study of English literature generally is Mm. and I found it fascinating and I enjoyed it but it wasn't the same as looking at books just to enjoy the story to really get into them and therefore I think it had an impact on on how creative I was interestingly because we had a we had a module that we could all do, which is a, vol- a voluntary optional thing where you could submit a piece of creative writing. Mm-hmm. And if you basically were on the cusp between a grade boundary, mm-hmm. that piece of creative writing would either bring you up or let you stay below. So if you did very well at the creative writing, it only had a, an advantage in one particular instance, but it was you know, a useful thing to do. And the fascinating thing was, there was a pretty much inverse correlation between the people who got really good results in their degrees and people who got, who were, who got really good results in the creative writing element. And that really interests me. Mm. And I think that's to do with that, you know, how you 
use your brain and exactly exactly uh, the way that you're stretching it i think yeah that is that's super interesting so did that then inform your decision to set up your theater company and start creating your your own place because that feels like that's taking a different approach and is is quite an entrepreneurial uh, way of doing things you weren't sort of waiting for things to happen you just went out and made made things happen yourself yeah, I think I think it was sort of the culmination of quite a lot of related experience that made it feel like a quite an easy decision. Okay. I'd done a ton of theatre as in my teenage years. I did lots. I actually was with sort of you know adults and amateurs of companies. I was mm-hmm. doing a lot at uni. I did really. I did far too much theatre at uni to the point where I was never getting any sleep because I was also rowing. It was a it was a disaster, <laughs> but it was an awful lot of fun. And then when I got to the point where I had written a play, I then just wanted to see it performed and because I'd been part of the mechanics of putting productions on so many times as an actor mm. and then as a director I just thought well just I'll just direct it myself and from there it became very natural just to turn that into a theatre company because I had people I'd worked with before people from uni people from these some semi-professional local theatre companies and then it yeah so it didn't feel too threatening to do that I mean it was financially terrifying I will say that I because by that point I'd I'd came out of uni and so for a short while I had a, a, a job as a marketing manager uh, for a company that was based just outside Cambridge and that was a real you know sort of safety net type thing I had my regular income whilst I was busy writing plays in the evening and rehearsing them and putting them on but essentially it was entirely getting in the way of my ability to write as much as I needed to and to perform as much as I needed to and to tour and uh, so I basically took a £27,000 pay cut in order to go and do the the playwriting thing which was terrifying I I will admit it was it was uh, I mean honestly sometimes cold sweats terrifying but it was all right I got used to not being entirely sure I had enough money coming in and to finding other ways of bringing little little bits in when I needed to, which would be something like writing an article for someone or doing a website for someone at a point when it was tight. And then once the play had gone on, we were in the very lucky situation that actually the company always made money out of its performances. Oh, and even fantastic. if it wasn't a lot, it was some. So it, in fact, it, yeah, it was survivable. And then I had a child and it became an impossible lifestyle. So I had to stop. Right. But up until that point, it was great. So when you made that decision to take that pay cut, was that around the time when you won the Fringe Award for your one act play otherwise? Because that must, have, that must have been an incredible feeling, like you said, to, to take that risk and then to win that. And then, first of all, talk to me about your, your experience then of, of taking that play to, to Edinburgh and winning the award. How was that? So oh, it was it was fantastic. I mean, we we knew that uh, we were up for it, um, but then I knew a lot of other people who were up for it as well. And okay. uh, I think I think that year, I'm trying to remember. I think that year I had been directing one of the plays, the other plays at the same time that was up for the award for someone okay. else, plus doing mine. Um, so I knew I knew a lot of real. There was a lot of really stiff competition out there, and we uh, arrived at Edinburgh feeling. Incredible, just pretty, pretty overwhelmed actually. Because I think sometimes the more you know, the more you realise how much a drop in the ocean you are. Mm. And it's such a mm. such a busy, frenetic place. I'd been as an audience member before, but I hadn't toured a play there before. And I just realised how hard it was going to be to stand out, make a splash, get people to come to our production. And then the first thing that happened was we, we were incredibly lucky that we had a reviewer there right on the very first preview night, who then reviewed it 
really well. The next night we had a Telegraph reviewer who read it, reviewed it really well. Oh, wow. And How did you get those reviewers in? Was that just pure luck or did you have a so, PR person? Yeah. So the first one was pure luck. Um, and I actually later realized that I should have been a lot hotter on the PR <laughs> I, yeah. because I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that I needed to be going to press junkets and actually getting people interested first. Mm-hmm. So we were really lucky that we had to, this was three weeks, which is a, you know, it's a big, um, big sort of publication for the festival. Uh, and he just came along and absolutely loved it and gave us this glowing review, which came out, I think the next day. So we were very lucky. So that meant then for the, for the duration, we were essentially booked up. The Telegraph reviewer fabulously um, turned out to be someone who one of my cast members knew. And wow. so he came along out of, out of interest and you know, wanting to support his friend. And then really liked it and made a point of reviewing. So we, we really were, I mean, there's a lot, there's always, I think everyone has these stories of creative industries. There's always as much luck as there is anything else in there. Sure. So that, re- but that really helped us. And then the award came later okay. uh, because obviously the whole fringe had to run its course and then wrap up. And then um, we got the, got the call after we had gone home. Okay. Uh, so all the plays had been not only read, in script form but also seen in performance and I had been I mean I'd spent one of the nights knowing that the reviewer was there the award award panelist was there and trying to work out who he was and uh, in fact I realized later on having seen a photograph of him that he had in fact been the man who turned around to me at the end of the play and said well done and I that was that was a really you know if I'd known that I would have been a little bit less nervous about the outcome because he obviously wow that's that is a rarity isn't it for a reviewer to to say that during a performance that's fantastic and so what knock-on effect what impact did that then have on your career as a playwright at that point so it came at a really interesting time. It came shortly before I had uh, my now 10-year-old. So okay. I knew at that point that I was going to struggle with being the, the one who was going to take the plays on and yeah. being the director, being the tourer. So I, I knew I had this really good, strong uh, sort of thing in my favour, which was the award. And I knew I wanted to take my career further and that I also wanted to write prose as well. Okay. So I just thought, well, the answer, I think, for me right now is to push the, uh, the direction, direction onto other people who were part of my company or who I knew elsewhere, let them tour plays as they saw fit, and then start basically looking harder at the novels, at the prose. So I went and did the UEA Creative Writing MA because I could just fit that around a small child. I did it part-time. Um, and I actually did an interesting thing because I slightly, I slightly bottled on just going all out for the prose strand. Because if you, go, if you go for the prose strand, you just do books. And I just felt like I hadn't got the track record as a writer of prose that I had as a playwright. I just thought I wouldn't get in. Or, and it would be then if I had to wait another year, it would be a disaster because by that point I wanted to be moving on. So I actually applied as a script writer who was going to do some prose on the side and did it that way. And that turned out to be oddly a really fantastic combination because I learned what I learned from the script writing strand was how to pitch and I'd not known this before and because I directed a lot of my own plays before I hadn't really had to pitch my ideas to people and get them to be really interested but I learned essentially that to pitch you need to really really know what your story is not a series of plot points not how you think the characters develop but the story and from there I then ended up getting uh, a, a basically a, this odd situation where I had a choice of six literary agents because 
when wow. I came to send, yeah, when I came to send my book out, I had this amazing pitch, which I'd never had before. And suddenly these doors opened for me in a way that they hadn't. So the pitch was a, it was like a pitch document that you'd put together based on what you'd picked up during the MA. Yeah. So essentially it was a synopsis okay. um, and people always you include a synopsis when sending to a literary agent or a publisher. Um, but what I had always done before, and I would encourage other people not to do because I had, like, like most people, I thought this was the way to do it. I had basically listed in order everything that happened in the book. Uh, okay. So this happens and this happens and this character comes in, but it turns out right. that's what I had done. What I realized from this, we had a fantastic, fantastic uh, script tutor who was from the world of film. And he explained that story is a very, very different thing. That story is the shape of the whole. It's where it goes. It's the reason someone's going to want to read. And that is what you put in your synopsis, whether you're writing for prose or you're writing to try and get something put on screen or, or on stage. And I mean, it was mind blowing for me because I, I just had never thought about it like that. And now it's for me, it's the same every time. It's three paragraphs. And I know the shape of how that works in every case because you can always be a little bit formulaic about it because a story is a story is a story. Uh, but I had suddenly had these three paragraphs that made people want to read my book. <laughs> and that has never happened to me before. Wow. And, uh, and I then had the slight problem that I hadn't actually finished the book, not by quite a long way. Having just assumed that they would take ages to get back to me, I yeah. <laughs> had to write it. And I wrote it incredibly quickly. And again, I wouldn't advise this. It's okay to tell them you're not done. And that you need a bit more time. Um, but I did. I wrote it incredibly quickly and then basically ended up working with my fabulous agents at Curtis Brown, who edited it with me quite substantially, thank goodness. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So I just want to go back a bit. You're a, you're a new mum, a newish mum. And at this point, are you a single parent or are you together? Yes. So you're a single parent. Yeah. And on top of being a single parent, you've just won this award. And then you think, actually, you know what? I need to pivot slightly in order to get to where I want to get to. And so you commit to doing this MA course, which yeah. then leads to you getting an agent. And then you have to scramble around and, you know, get this book together. Like, first of all, like the confidence, you know, must take to just commit to doing that because it's tough enough just raising a kid to juggle the two together is incredible. But then um, how did you find that sort of, that time and and how were you able to structure at that early point where obviously your kid requires so much yeah. attention time and attention i mean being honest the first year was absolute hell <laughs> being completely imagine. honest when i committed to doing the course i was still with my partner okay and then that sort of fell apart uh, just as i was i mean i basically did about the first term and then the relationship sort of fell apart yeah um which was actually the, the background thing that was happening, which made it all a lot harder for me, was that I had set up a, a, a little a business on the side to help my partner out because he needed some creative work. So right. I had set up this business doing wedding stationery. Okay. Which, I mean, it, and of course, I should have thought about it. He was a purely creative person, very, very talented, but he wasn't yeah. a business person at all. Right. So I ended up having to do the whole business side of it whilst trying to do I mean it was a part-time MA but I was trying to do that and the business and then also the child bringing wow. up and I did I mean I 
I did honestly I I did crumble quite a bit that year I I ended up going on antidepressants because I was really struggling and the one thing oh it was it was it was bad and I and you know when your relationship's breaking down for no no not because no not because the other person's not pleasant or whatever but because it just isn't working yeah and you can see that it's not working and it's very sad and it's it's and I think I mean, it's probably easier than having to deal with some sort of tempestuous thing with lots of arguments. But it was just, it was a sad thing. Sure. And to then try and step back into, you know, being a single parent, the ultimate answer I, I had, which I had as an option then, which I wouldn't have now, and I know everyone else doesn't always have, is that I was able to move back in with my parents for a short while. So as all this was sort of falling apart, I moved back in. And at a really key point, I got just enough childcare along with a bit of nursery to kind of cope, to, to, to go through it. And that just got me through that first year of the course, which I both sort of loved and sort of hated because I felt like I was only ever giving the course half of my attention. Right. And I wanted it to be, to be giving it everything. You know, this was what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to write. I didn't want to be sending emails to brides for their wedding, even though they're lovely people. But I did, that was not what I wanted to be doing. I didn't yeah. want to be laying out things and putting fonts and invoices together. So it was a hard, it was a really hard time. And I think I also didn't do myself any favours by not mentioning to any of my course tutors that basically my life was in the background, quietly falling apart. <laughs> wow, okay. I probably should have done. I think it would have helped me. I think they would have been fine about it and, and supportive. But there's pride, isn't there, sometimes? Yeah, there is pride. And I'd imagine at that time, it probably wasn't as um, mental health and that sort of stuff wasn't really as talked about or you know, in, in such a yeah. public way. Or uh, It's now seen as a much more common thing to be able to be open about it. Whereas then, it, it, we were only talking about, what, nine years ago. It's, it's still yeah. changed up what the landscape since then. So I can understand why you'd be... Uh, reticent to do so um, it's funny isn't it yeah yeah it's amazing how you know it's, it's, it's brilliant how much it's become much more of an open subject to, to be able to to talk about okay so I'm just trying to I'm just trying to join all the dots here so and then you also <laughs> so you had this going on and then you also developed uh, an online following for sort of your for young adult and children's writing which yeah. which basically I think garnered over sort of a million reads was that what what period of time was that was that prior to your first book being published or was were you doing that in conjunction with writing it so that was that all happened during my second year of the ma basically whilst i was waiting waiting for replies about my first book because this is because as i'm sure many many listeners will know there's this horrible bit when it goes out on submission to to publishers and you're just sitting there waiting and you get nothing for it might be a very short amount of time if you're lucky. It might be a very long amount of time, but you just don't know what's happening. You don't know how yeah. it's being received. And this was my very first book that went out on submission, which actually okay. did not end up getting a publisher. So that waiting game went on for months. And right. there, were a lot of, there were a lot of factors in there. There's the fact that it was sort of between three genres because it had a bit of historical, a bit of literary, a bit of mystery. And actually mm-hmm. it sort of fell between people's different editors' interest areas. Okay. Um, it came at a time when Penguin and Random House had just merged. So things... Right felt very tentative okay. and a lot of a lot of publishers were probably a bit more wary and and sometimes you just you know these these things happen you just don't have to happen to find someone who loves it and I found that I mean I found the waiting incredibly hard I found the sort of ultimate realization that this was not the book that was going to get me somewhere harder mm. um, and the ultimate escapism for me was to go and do something completely different but that was still writing so when I wasn't doing the MA I wrote 
this fantasy series for kids and I mm. quite early on Wattpad contacted me to say they wanted to feature it as a as a kind of a lead story on their site because mm-hmm. that was quite early in the days of Wattpad which is now massive but at that point it was was a chunk smaller and so because they featured it and I was there uploading two chapters every week I really gained a following doing it um so that particular book got I think it's got about 1.8 million reads now um and then I went on to do a couple of others on the side whilst waiting for other books to come back um which have gained even more because I kind of tapped a bit more into that exactly what everyone on that site is a real fan of which is normally a bit of a a bit of romance a bit of fantasy all kind of put together um so it's been an amazing amazing experience having that running in the background and in some ways it's probably not a massive boon to my current writing very few of my readers have come across because they read a different genre but those who have have been incredibly lovely and supportive and loyal and it was feedback and the feeling that I was still a writer when I really needed it mm. uh, and that and that clamoring for the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter it's it's wonderful for spurring you on so in fact it was it, it was it was a great experience at a time when I was feeling quite low about my writing generally mm. and was part of the reason I was able to ultimately pick myself back up and go right I'm going to write the other book and that's the book that I then got first contracted for with Penguin. She Lies in Wait. Yeah, She Lies in Wait. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us rate and review us because it makes the world of difference and the more reviews we get the more rates we get the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral whatever that means okay back to the chat well sorry so during that period of time you seem to be you were so productive and you had all these different things going on did you have any time to yourself like did you was there any time for for self-care or for you was was writing the self-care i think writing definitely became self-care i think okay. since i've put back in a few things that i had done before that i had stopped entirely and one of those is gaming so okay. now if i need a break yeah. i just I, I will do i mean i'm currently playing for example the marvelous bloons td6 which my 10 year old introduced me to okay. and it's brilliant i mean you wouldn't have thought that putting down monkeys to stop balloons attacking was that much fun but it's great <laughs> right yeah. um so it, I would, I would find now. That's what I'd now find. At the time, it it really was the only thing I was doing that was making me feel good. Okay. And so, in some ways, I suppose it was quite addictive. In just in that respect, it was it was the thing that was kind of buoying me up, keeping me going. Yeah. And I almost felt that if I let myself do anything else, like get into a TV series or something, that I would I would lose momentum, and mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do as much as I needed. Um, which lasted right up until I got myself another job, <laughs> at which point, you know, I needed to, do, I needed to unwind sometimes. And I realized that. Okay. So, and so unwinding for you comes in the form of, of gaming. Uh, what, what does, what does gaming do for you? Is it just like a complete switch off? That's it. It's my brain being completely occupied with something else. Okay. So the only thing, the only other thing that does that for me is climbing. So bouldering is. Okay. What I tend to do you do but... that indoor or out, outdoors? So um, I've I've done it pretty much all indoors, um, okay. pretty much it, largely because in Cambridge there's just nothing to climb outdoors unless you go a long way. Okay. So you end up, you know, if you like it, you tend to do either climbing trips at the weekend, which are hard for me as a single mum, sure. or you just, you know, you do it during the day inside. Yeah. So it's sad. I can't, you know, that's something I can't do right now. 
yeah. because of the, the walls being closed. Sure. But um, but it's a great, you know, it's a great, fun, uh, good, good brain switch off. But yeah, gaming is the other because I think it just, I mean, it just directly hits all those dopamine centers in your brain. It, there's no, there's no chance to sort of overthink about things that make you anxious, which was quite a part of my life for a while when I was feeling like I wasn't quite on top of everything. Yeah. And I think, I think it can be great. So, and it's interesting how I think the game you choose will depend on how you feel. Like with books, you know, you might be in a, in a mood where you just want something upbeat and comforting or another sort of mood where you want something a bit dark and twisty because you're feeling a bit more robust. And with games, it's just the same. If I'm in a, the worst, worst of all moods, I just want to do a first person shooter where the only thing I'm doing is aiming at targets and firing. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing complex, there's nothing hard, there's nothing emotionally engaging about it. And then the better I'm feeling, the more I want to do something with a bit more story. Okay, that's really interesting. Because I, I used to be a gamer when I was you know, younger, and then I stopped. Really? I, I kind of just developed this, this point of view or thought process, like, well, it's, it's kind of, it's wasting time. As mm-hmm. if reading or watching something wasn't wasting time. Like, they're all, you know, they're all kind of yeah. recreational pursuits. But I think in what I, I started to say to myself, yeah, but if I'm reading something, I'm learning something. Or if I'm watching something, I'm learning something. But then that's the whole point. If it's a recreational pursuit, you want yeah. that, that time to just switch off completely. That's it. And I think that's absolutely uh, something that I, I, a process I went through as well. When I was a teenager, I spent a while gaming as an, as an escape from life and as an escape from reality and instead of reality. And that got to a point where it was not good for me. So that was, you know, all my evenings, all my weekends, all I was looking forward to every day when I was at school was getting back home and turning on Baldur's Gate or whatever it was I was playing at the time. And, and that, that got to a point where it wasn't doing me any favors. And I had this realization that not because it, it, not because it wasn't a book, because I'd been addicted to books at a previous point in my life, yeah. but I just realized that all these things that I did as escapism mm. had their value, yes, but had got to the point where they were taking away from actually making myself happier in my life. Okay. So, you know, forging better friendships, being out with my you know, allies more or my friends, even just talking to my family more. Yeah. And then they were taking away from the time I might like to write as well because writing may be a bit of an escape but it's one that really does it felt like I was pushing forwards to something I was learning all the time yeah um, and so yeah like you I, I definitely felt that there was wasted time and as you say it's not because <laughs> it's not that it's it's not about having downtime because I think doing some of it is great but the interesting thing I found since I, that I only go through this phase of being really quite hooked on games mm. when I really need a break Right. It's when I'm knackered, you know, it's not when I'm in the middle of writing a book successfully and that's all going fine. It's not when things are just going along nicely. It's when I've normally when I've just finished a book okay. um, or, you know, over summer, just finished renovating a house, which was the bad idea I had this summer. Right. And I was just exhausted and I really just needed to do something that involved a bit of chill. Yeah. And then the moment, the moment I, I felt better and I felt I recuperated a bit the addiction went and I wasn't really interested in playing that much anymore. Interesting. So do you, cause you're saying before you found that if you watch sort of TV series, then you could see yourself getting addicted to, you know, not addicted, but yeah. you get consumed in, it, especially, in a, you know, we're in the golden age of TV. Do you not watch um, TV series or is it, so is I, it gaming or substitute yeah. for that? It, I think it is my substitute. Um, yeah. I actually only basically only watch TV with my partner Okay. Um, and so we live in separate houses and he 
will come around or I'll go to see him. So, and our ritual is we will watch an episode of whatever the thing is that we're currently watching. Okay. So basically that's when I watch TV. Sometimes recently, my 10 year old has said he quite fancies watching a bit of a film with me. So we might do, you know, 45 minutes of a film together and yeah. then watch the next bit the next night. Um, but no, it's odd. I don't, it doesn't generally particularly occur to me to sit and watch something. But then when I do get into something, just, just occasionally, I am completely into it, as you yeah, say, completely course. addicted. Like Stranger Things, I watched it pretty much all in a day because uh-huh, I yeah. just was so like, I need to watch this. Yeah. And there are various other series that have been the same. But um, yeah. yeah, other than that in general, I, and I find other ways of procrastinating. I mean, I spend a lot of time online, like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and I quite, you know, I quite like it. I quite like the connection with people. But sometimes I say to myself, right now, Twitter and Facebook are going away. and I'm just going to focus. Do you, do, do you then delete them from your phone or you just, right, I'm not, do you have the willpower just to put the phone down? I just turn the notifications off and that's enough. Okay, that's think. enough for you, uh, yeah. Yeah, so then, and then I'll check back in when I'm ready to. And it's a funny thing with social media. I think it really depends on the sort of person that you are and to how useful, useful it is. We had, a, we had a chat right really quite early on uh, when we were at UEA. I think it might even be the first session with sort of the head of the script writing strand. Mm. And we ran around the room, first of all, talking about our productivity um, that year. And I'd had a really particularly good year that year. So I felt quite good about my productivity. And then we ran around talking about the things that get in the way of productivity. And top of her list was social media. And I said, well, I sort of agree. But at the same time, actually, I found social media really very useful. I find it the way I sort of check back in with people when I want a break and feel like I'm not on my own in a room writing. And this is something I've, I've long felt about it, that it's, it's quite a good, if you can, if you can just dip in and dip out, mm-hmm. it makes you just feel like you're in connection with the world without having to get necessarily drawn in. Right. And I, and I mostly just use it like that. So I don't need to feel that I'm you know, getting dragged off into it. And, uh, and I remember her saying, well, I'd like to see your productivity. And, and the best part of it was we had literally just run around, run around the room. And because I'd had a good year, I'd, I'd written about three times as much as everyone else had because I'd been on a real kind of year. And I was able to say, well, actually, look at it. It's good. You know, you can use social media right. And, and there's a, that's a really important thing that I think she was slightly missing uh, because social media is so much a part of having to be a writer now you you know you there are some writers who get away without it but mm-hmm. essentially you are expected to run a twitter account run a facebook account maybe have an instagram mm. and to promote yourself as well as uh, and and interact with readers i mean that's the thing as well it's, it's about a relationship isn't it and um and then you get buoyed up by it too you know, occasionally someone tags you in a bad review but mostly it's people coming to tell you how much they loved your book and it's lovely mm. so it's a nice place to be and it's and it's an inspiration so I, I have mixed feelings yeah you, do you schedule in time per day or per week for for your social media endeavors i mostly just see what mood i'm in okay. because i think there are two very different moods and one is i'm in a real publicity mood where i want to be pushing my stuff a little bit i say pushing you know just sharing just telling people hey i've written a book would you like to read it and making cool gifts and photographs to share on instagram and and i really like all that stuff and i and mm. i enjoy it um but that's a very different mood to the mood that i'm in when i want to just sit down and write three chapters and i tend to just go okay i'm in the mood for a or b and do whatever suits at the time and i'm sure this isn't how everyone else does it because i think there's so many differences between how everyone functions as a writer and as a, a promoter of themselves or not. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying this is the way to do it. It just seems to be how it works for me. 
Okay, great. Yeah, they, it's like you said, everyone's got their way of doing things. Once you find out what works for you, just yeah. just go with that. So you you did the course, the, the Creative Writing MA course 2011, and then your first novel is published 2019, and it goes on yeah. to be a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller and a Richard and Judy book club pick, no less. <laughs> Talk to me about that feeling. Having done, you know, you've spun loads of creative plates and now you've, you've got your first book published. What was that feeling like and, and, how, was, and how was that whole experience for you? I, well, I mean, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, it's been such a long time in the making because I think like the first time that I originally decided I wanted to be a published novelist, I was 14 and I'd written wow, this okay. appalling book. And then from then I just wrote and wrote. And in fact, the book that was first published of mine, because I'd been writing away in the background and learning how to write, was in fact the seventh novel I had ever written. Oh, really? But okay. just, yeah. And one of which, of course, was the sixth one was the one that didn't quite sell. And all the others were just, you know, works in progress that I uh, discarded. And so I... I really felt when it came to it, there was a sense of serious unreality because of how long I've been waiting to get to this point. Mm. And I, it, it all happened quite strangely as well because my marvellous agent didn't actually tell me that she was sending it out that week. She just said, oh, it'll be at some point in January. So I didn't know it had gone out yet. So I wasn't sitting there checking my emails every five minutes waiting to see if someone wanted it. Oh, which was clever. Oh, it was amazing. It was blissful. Yeah. So I just, the first I knew was when she emailed me the first offer that had come in on it, uh, which was incredible. And at that point, it was a really lovely offer from a fabulous publishing company, but a smaller one. Right. And that first offer was not enough to mean I could leave my job or okay. cut down my hours, but it was fab, you know, it was great. And she then said to me, so first offer's in, I'm now going to go and prod any, everyone else. And yeah. I was like, okay, cool, great. Thinking, you know, this will probably be the offer. This is probably it. And then the next morning, she came back and said, right, so the off I've had a preempt in from Penguin. And, um, and it was literally 10 times the amount of money that the first offer had been oh, wow. because it's a so much bigger. And they wanted to offer for all three of my first three books that I'd outlined. And, and I honestly didn't really quite believe her when she told me. So she, cause she's mentioning these numbers, which are just, I mean, just life-changing amounts of money. Uh, cause I knew I could, you know, if that was true, I could, quit my job and I could do this thing and more importantly it was this but uh, I mean pretty much my favorite possible choice of publisher okay yeah. so I was you know really a bit you know and then I then I didn't have anyone to tell because I couldn't get anyone in my family to answer the phone and I was in work at the job that I was doing where I didn't I hadn't really told them I was doing this whole thing on the side and um, just a couple of them knew. So eventually I just had, I was going to burst. So I had to tell my lovely, lovely boss and she, and she was over the moon for me. Uh, and until the point I told her, I didn't really believe it. It was extraordinary. It was just this feeling of it not being, not being right. So that's a long way of saying it was brill. <laughs> and, uh, and then I really had the expectation that the first book would be, well, I don't know. And I think I talked to enough authors by the time it came out to know that, it's, it's really unlikely that you're going to do marvellously well with the first book. There is occasional big splashy debuts, but what most authors do is they build a career and you will go out and it will sell some copies and hopefully build a bit of a readership. And then book two will be terrible. And then book three will hopefully be okay. This is what I was told. And then right. to get the Richard and Judy uh, sort of changed everything because it meant that suddenly it was going to be stocked in far more shops. It was going to be you know, in really large numbers. It's going to be promoted in this really particular way. And that was basically what meant... 
I became a Sunday Times bestseller. It was, it really was you know, the Rich and Judy and some fab promotion from various people as well on top. So I was, uh, I mean, incredibly fortunate to get it. And I thought I'd also, interestingly, I thought I'd missed it the first week because the week that I thought it might happen, the Sunday Times top 10 thing, I just missed out. I think I was like number 12 or something. Right. And I just thought, oh, well, there we go. Missed the chance because your normal biggest week is the first full week of sales. But because of it being over Christmas and January then being a little bit quieter, actually my second full week was the one that pushed me up and I suddenly hit the top 10. So having, again, thought I hadn't managed it, I was yeah, just completely over the moon. Incredible. Yeah, I can, yeah what a feeling. What a feeling. <laughs> so when uh, Penguin Random House offered you the, the publishing deal, and it's a, it's a, you said it's a three-book deal. Is it a three-book? Yeah. Yeah. That's what, right. What were their expectations from you in terms of the timeline in which you needed to deliver all three books? So they basically wanted a book a year. And okay. that's, um, that's a very standard thing in the industry, having talked to others. And okay. that suited me fine because I knew that I was going to be able to cut my hours down or leave the job if they didn't want me to cut my hours down. Yeah. Um, and that that was not going to be a problem because suddenly I'd gone from having to fit writing around all the edges and to actually having the time to do it properly and to do it full on. So um, in fact, my agent was sort of arguing for a bit more time for the first for the first novel but I ended up submitting it sort of three months early because I I just you know I had suddenly got time to do it and I was so used to having to make the most of every spare hour that it felt like ages it suddenly wow, it felt okay. like you know acres of time yeah and how many drafts did you go through I think we did so it was so it was the first draft and then there's a main redraft so okay. a big sort of structural edit which I was which was kind of the deal I'd said I'm going to send in my first draft and not change it because I'd actually quite like to know your thoughts at the same time I think it's okay. easier yeah. and that worked brilliantly and that's what we've done ever since so my agent and my editor looked at it at the same time yeah thoughts amalgamated with what I thought needed to change and I did a really big rewrite okay and then we did two smaller rewrites and then that that was it and it, the, I mean the, the next two sets of edits are sort of small things like oh maybe we should move this thread a bit earlier and a couple of things like that okay. give it more space to this character um it's always that big rewrite that takes the time yeah uh, and then um that's exactly what we did with, with book three as well. And it's exactly what we're planning for book four, which I'm hopefully hitting the send button on on Friday for the first draft. Okay, fantastic. And is book four, um, from what I gather, all three books feature the same character, DCI, yes. Joan Machines. That, and, That's right. And but book four, is, is, are they also going to be featured in that as well? Yes, indeed. So yeah. I, uh, having had a, a fantastic um, experience with my publishers, we yeah. both decided we wanted to work together again and continue on the series. So okay. I then at the beginning of this year signed a new contract with them for books four and five. Okay. And um, same in the States as well, okay. which is great. Uh, so so we're, we contracted to do more of Jonah. And in fact, it's, got, it's kind of Jonah and his team because although it is, a, it's the, you know, for simplicity, you'd call them a, a Jonah Sheen's novel. Yeah. Uh, his team is as important and you know Juliet Hansen who is uh, the the newbie at the beginning of book one uh, becomes a very significant uh, sort of character in it as well so okay. it's yeah it's Jonah and his team okay and, and what, how did you develop an interest in in the crime genre 
Oh, I've, so I've long, long read crime. My okay. parents are big into crime, particularly my mum. My dad's a bit more eclectically into sort of crime and sci-fi. Uh, so there've always been crime books around. And I've, I've just always loved to read them. And I think the interesting thing for me has been developing what I think is my idea of how I like crime. Okay. And I will read almost anything crime related, but the ones that I really loved, and I will go back to it again and again, are the ones where there's a lot of feeling in them. So you're not just trying to solve a puzzle. You're getting into the heads of the characters who have, in many cases, lost someone or suffered, or in some cases, you're getting into the head of a killer, but more often into the head of a victim. Yeah. And that's, to me, that was what I wanted to do. But I also had a very strong idea that I wanted each one to have a real hook, a real draw, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. kind of thing where I would look at the cover and turn it round and just think from the small synopsis on the back, oh gosh, I really want to read that with a little sort of spine tingling feeling. And that's what I've always wanted out of my writing is the kind of those elements. So I, um, yeah, I suppose it was just a, a sort of strange sort of a, a, a drifting, drifting into it sort of choice that it made it very natural for me to want to write to write crime myself and, and I've written I've written fantasy for kids on on Wattpad which is a whole different genre um maybe at some point I might dabble in a bit of sci-fi though I think I'd be bad at it because I haven't read as much of it recently uh so would maybe I'd have Do you to think that's important is important to really soak up the genre and read as much as you possibly can I think that's the way I like to do it okay. um I mean I, I remember having a conversation with again one of the great UEA, UEA tutors about the fact that I didn't watch tv and that I wanted to maybe write a TV series. But I said, but I just feel like uh, I'm not qualified to write it because I don't, I don't watch it enough. I don't know enough. I don't know what's going on in the market. And I feel like I just get it wrong. And he said, well, it could be that it'd be a disaster. He said, but it could be absolute genius because you're not writing with any preconceptions about what's in at the moment. You're writing something you just want to write. Good and sometimes point. that, yeah, that can be the thing that changes everything. So I think, you know, it depends on how, how you want to do it and how you want to look at it. And if, you know, uh, you aren't someone who reads huge amounts of sci-fi and want to write sci-fi, maybe you should give it a go. I think I just worry for myself that I'd, for <laughs> some reason, I think I'd just be the, the one person who made a massive error and did the one thing that everyone hates in sci-fi and then no one wanted it. <laughs> so are you writing, are you screenwriting then at the moment? Are you, or are you writing for TV? So I put together some stuff which took a real back burner as soon as the um, publishing contract came through and the, in the inevitable way these things work. Yeah. I had lots of fingers in different pies. Um, so, I was, uh, so I have a TV series which is kind of currently on hold, which I'd love to go back to. Okay. Um, and I, I manned up and I did write it thinking, okay, well, I'll just have to be nuts then. And mm. according to my screen agent, it is in fact nuts. So that's okay. And uh, so we, I'd really like at some point to to get that going again okay. but I suppose the priority is and the focus has been has been on prose since since so Penguin happened along and and I'm you know really happy with that situation as long as at some point I get to do a bit more theatre again and a bit of TV be fair yeah I mean it's variety is spice of life eh you get to, so it's yeah it's that's a, a a great position to be in when when you get to that point and you can move between different forms and and genres that's that's something that you do a lot of is sort of free movement between four yeah i i and i feel i don't know whether it's a it's a good thing or it's like <laughs> detrimental but i look at it as you know i look at it as well, okay i've developed these different skill sets and it puts me in a a position now where i'm able to use them whereas yeah. at the time it's like that's that classic did you, ever, um, did you ever listen to that steve jobs speech about connecting the dots you only connect the dots when you look back 
Yes, yes, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, it, it feels like that in the moment. You know, during that process, okay, well now I'm doing this, I'm doing acting, and now I'm yeah. doing directing, now I'm writing. You know, jumping between these things without sort of a real <laughs> like thought process behind it. But whereas now I can like I can look back at it and go, okay, great, I learned that experience, and yeah. this, this, and this, which means I can write, act, direct, or produce in a project because I'm a megalomaniac. <laughs> I love it. No, I'm, I turned out to be accidentally the same because I think it's just easier, you know, to do the whole thing yourself. Mind you, I didn't actually want to act in my projects. I just sometimes had to when, you know, someone got involved in a court case, someone else got very ill. Right. And, you know, you just have to be ready to step up, I suppose. But, but that's because I'm not a great actor rather than because I wouldn't enjoy <laughs> doing all of it. Yeah, but it's, it's like, it's, it's great experience, isn't it? Because then when you do, like you said, you ended up directing your plays and you knew what it was, you had the experience of being an actor. So, you know, you have that empathy there. You know, there's yeah. an empathy, empathy there that you can connect with the actor and communicate with them in a certain way that might be more challenging if you hadn't have had that experience. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's, I think that's so important for so many walks of life, actually. And I think it's, it's sometimes it's lost when, I mean, because I coach, co- have coached quite a lot of rowing over the last 17 years, actually. It's a terrifyingly long amount of time. Okay. I said rowed so and then... So is that, sorry to interrupt, so that, would that then classify as a kind of, um, what were we going back, what were we going back to before about you sort of enjoying slices of life outside of rowing, etc. That would be another yeah. element. Definitely, definitely. And rowing has been a big part of my life, partly because it's actually oddly been the way I think I've re- met most of my partners. Um, yeah it's interesting Um, and every time I then broke up with someone I'd be like right I'm never dating someone in the boat club ever again and then I (laughs) end up doing it again Um, (laughs) it's terrible Um, but uh, it's 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 interesting in that um, I think having having a completely different group of people can be incredibly good for you so you know I have my theatre group I have my rowing group and they these guys become really good friends but they're not you know, they don't have to cross over. Then the, the mistake I made was to drag lots of rowers into doing theatre. Turns out lots of rowers are very good actors if you give them half a chance. I don't know why, but, um, but lots of them were absolute stars and ended up being really very good and, and, I, and had a blast doing it. But that's, that, that was a sort, of, sort of a mistake in some ways. But I think, I think just having lots of things that your self-esteem depends on is so key, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you are only basing your self-esteem, as I think at one point briefly was, my self-esteem was based on, is this book going to sell? If I hadn't had anything in the background at all, I think I would have crumbled further than I did. And I think if I'd been doing more rowing at the time mm. and more competitive sport, I would have felt like I had this other self to draw on. So, okay, my writing's not going very well at the moment, but this is this other thing that I'm good at. And I think it would have really helped me. I think it would have, and I, and that's something I've sort of borne in mind ever since. And I'm sure there's, I think, I'm sure there is a psychological theory about this, about something about you know, the constellation of things that make you feel that, like yourself. But I think it's so true that the more you have going on, like you're doing, you know, the more you have, the more resilient it makes you as well as the more, you know, the more skillful. Because if someone's being critical of one creative pursuit that you've done or it hasn't gone quite as you've wanted you're like yeah but I've got this thing over here that I can do and I'm great at that too so yeah I think it's uh, I think it's really important yeah and I think also the importance of having pastimes not just to take your mind off everything but also I find a lot of times I'll unlock a creative problem during during those times you know my subconscious is working away and then suddenly like oh yeah cool that could work or just come up with a with an original idea 
that's great i totally agree i think that whole subconscious sort of background working on something is such a useful thing and i think it's something that often isn't taken into account enough in the whole writing process because mm. i mean i don't start to write a book until there's been quite a lot of mulling in the background and when i'm away from it it's still you know it's still chuntering away in here even if i have to take a few weeks off it's still there and there's still stuff happening you know there's still stuff growing yeah no i totally agree i think the only thing that i'm not i for some reason i don't tend to do is think of the next book idea whilst doing something different yeah because for me for some reason just the way it works and i wonder if it's years of writing plays where i had to think of an idea for the next season at a, a set time mm. but i just it, in order to have the next book idea I sit down and I go, right, it is now time to think of the next book idea. And I sit and I think of the next book idea and that's the only way I can do it. So do you just, um, do you just sit, you sit looking at a blank page on your laptop and it just, just comes to yeah. you? Yeah, basically just wow, get my laptop, okay. laptop out and go, okay, what's, what's, next, what's the next idea going to be? What do I want to get out of it? And therefore, how's it going to work? And in normally because it's crime and it's a hook thing, yeah. it's now um, what, what gives me the chills? What idea? is going to make me hooked in and want to read a book therefore that's the book i have to write okay and, and how much how much is that idea informed by uh a commercial aspect so are you looking to seeing what's what's popular in the marketplace are you speaking to your publisher asking them what they're looking for or is it just purely like this is the idea this is what i want to work yeah. on so, so now you say that i feel like maybe i should be doing those things <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no, I don't at all. It's interesting. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm so vaguely aware of what's going on in the background. Okay. But it always comes down to uh, that feeling of what would really make me go wow if I mm. if I were to read a book as as a reader. What's the thing that I would pick up from a bookshop and have to buy because I just desperately want to know how that concept went. So that's all I do. Um, and okay. that'll probably get boring after a while but right now that's that's my thing well that's i think that's smart you're putting yourself in the reader's shoes which is probably the most important thing isn't it i guess i hope i hope that it is i mean i think that's always how i've approached it yeah. always as a reader because i i suppose because i've read and read and i know what i've loved yeah. and that's and that's you know and then i know other people do it a very different way and they kind of inform the reader they're, they're, they're smart people who can give the reader something that they never even knew they wanted and that's that's a, a whole different way too but um but yeah we're all we're all we're all different as writers i think aren't we indeed indeed so if i was to ask you having you know you've gone through this whole journey if i was to ask you for one tip to aspiring writers what would it be honestly i think it's just keep writing i can't think of anything more important i mean it took me 21 years to get a publishing contract and when it happened, wow. it was marvellous. You know, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is the thing. is it's, It may be that it happens much more quickly for you, and that's cool too. And maybe the best thing is to hang on in there and hope it does because it'll keep you motivated in the moment. But for 21 years, the thing I really wanted in my life was this, this thing that I'm now doing. And it is something you can get there, even after a lot of failure, which I've had, <laughs> and a lot of frustration. So just, just keep writing. Brilliant. I, um, those were the exact words that Irvin Welsh wrote in a, in, I, I went to a Q and a with him, uh, for, I'm not sure if it was porn. It was one of, one of the books a few years ago he released. And, right. um, I, I met him, he was signing books and I said, you know, I'm an aspiring writer. It's about five years ago or so. And he said, okay. I said, if you, what advice would you give? And he didn't say anything. He just wrote in the book, keep writing. Yeah. 
Oh, he got me. Obviously, he got there way before I did. <laughs> but yeah, I totally, I mean, I could not agree more because yeah. fundamentally it is about learning a trade as much as, I mean, I think that's, again, something that sometimes gets lost in the way that we talk about the, the most amazing overnight success, the new novelist who's come along, who's just blowing everyone away. Writing is as much a skill as any other discipline. And the more you write, the more you improve. So if this book right now is not ready yet, it doesn't mean it's because it's bad. It just means it's because your, your next one is going to be even better. That's, that's really what I think. Great advice. Um, okay, two more questions I'm going to ask you. Um, first one is, are there any books that stand out to you over the years that have had a, a real impact on you or have inspired you in some way? Oh, wow. Yeah, I, 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 ne- I should always be ready for these sorts of questions. And then every time I'm always going, oh, my goodness, I can't even think. Yeah, ev- everyone's but, the same though, right? And then it's, they put, uh, it's funny. sort of like turning around, looking at their bookshelf. Just uh, going, oh, what book was it? Yeah. Uh, this is when you discover that the, the, the downside of having vanity put your own books on your bookshelf. <laughs> so, um, so I, I mean, I absolutely loved Wolf Hall, which I think is coming to a reasonably late point in my career, but I think maybe just think all over again how writing can be so beautiful and yet so incredibly addictive and compelling mm. and that's made me feel like I want to write you know as marvelously as Harry Mantel which I will say right now is never going to happen but it's better to aim high and fail spectacularly I think I there are lots and there are lots of, I, suppose, I suppose when I was younger some of the books that really made a difference to me were Dorothy Sayers because she is sort of cozy crime and yet she's not because there's more to it they are they tend to get to you emotionally a bit they have you know more more sympathy for the victim you're not encouraged just to neglect them and ignore them and they were the start of me realizing that maybe crime didn't have to be just Hercule Poirot twinkling which is fun in its way but Mm. I found it more satisfying when it wasn't and from there strangely I got drawn into the the sort of much darker worlds of Ian Rankin's Rebus novels and Val McDermott's fabulous novels and a lot of you know quite gritty crime that made me realize actually crime can really be very much about real life and it can be about socio-political issues and it can be about people suffering and that's important too. Great that's a great answer and final question to you is what, do, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? I suppose balance means a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, about having many different aspects of your life uh, all going on simultaneously and not limiting yourself, I suppose, to just being a writer while still taking yourself seriously. I think the, all the other elements of my life that have gone into it, whilst having been sometimes incredibly stressful at the time, have been some to some extent still fodder for books even if I've not directly written about any of them I've still learned about human nature and how we operate when we're under stress or strange little things about you know advertising agencies or how theatre companies work all these things have been part of writing and I think keep you know keep those other things going and you know see as much as possible I would I would see those as as much about being a writer as sitting in front of a laptop and writing. Fantastic. Where can people find out more about you and, and what you're up to? So I have a very uh, silly blog, as you've mentioned, called the Imperfect Single Parent Blog, uh, where I probably ought to start writing more up about my books because that's kind of the main thing I do. Uh, but that does, does talk at least a little bit about my 
ridiculous single parenting and have a few links in there in case you wanted to order a signed copy or anything. Um, I'm to be found on Twitter. So I'm Geetha Lodge on Twitter. And I'm impossible to spell, by the way. It's G-Y-T-H-A. It's a ridiculous name. And uh, I apologize for that. <laughs> and, um, uh, and also on Facebook. Um, or if you just happen to see any of my books whilst you're strolling around Tesco's, I know that Watching from the Dark is currently out in Tesco's and also in Waterstones, which I know is closed, but you can order online and all the independents you can order online from as well, which would be brilliant. And my next book, Lie Beside Me, comes out on February the 18th. And I have to say, I'm overwhelmingly excited for it because of the three books I've written so far, it is far and away my favourite. And I really can't wait to see it out in the world. So that's Lie Beside Me. Brilliant. All right. Well, like I said, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you. Thanks so much for the chat. It's been brilliant. Perfect. And there we have it. Geetha Lodge in the building via Zoom. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said, loads of takeaways there. Yeah, it's always great just hearing different people's creative journeys. And so often you hear about these stories of like the overnight success, but there's so many years of graft that usually go into it, apart from the fluky fuckers or, you know, the really annoyingly talented ones who wake up out the womb and are just sort of like, ta-da, I've arrived. Like, mate, that's enough from you. Back you go. So I've just started watching Ozark and I'm enjoying that. After many, many recommendations, I've decided to give in. And that is my lockdown part to watch. And just gotta love Jason Bateman. He is, he's just class and he's a class act. And uh, I'm enjoying it. It's a good, uh, good bit of drama, isn't it? But it's all dark, very dark. Everything about it is dark. The grade is dark. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not a light heart series. There are moments of, of comedy in it, I have to say. There are moments, but uh, few and far between. So that is what I'm watching. And I'm uh, very late today, but I'm now reading Paul Beatty's The Get Out. I started reading it. It's one of those. I started reading it, stopped a couple of years ago. And now I'm getting back into it because everyone says it's uh, the funniest novel they've read in years. So... I will let you know how I get on with that. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please do rate and review it on podcasts and all that jazz. And hope you're safe and well. Until the next one, see you later. Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on comedycrowdtv.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.